We are, um, we are preaching through 1 Timothy. We're going to take a break starting next week for um, Christmas in the Psalms. But we are going to continue this week in 1 Timothy. So um, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to make their way around. And uh, we have a Bible we can make available to you. So if you could just raise your hand, indicate that you need one. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So you can open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you're using the Bible that's being distributed, it's on page 992. Page 992 on those black Bibles that are being distributed. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. And I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we come together knowing that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so today, for our very health and vitality, we need your word. We don't need to just hear a sermon. We need the very word of God that we've just read, your word, to be 
to go down deep within us, to be shaping us and forming us. So we pray that your spirit, together we ask that your spirit would be working in our midst. We open our hearts to you. We need you, Lord. We need you. Use this word as you would see fit in the exact ways you intend. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by quoting the Holy Spirit to you. In Matthew 24, he says, Many will fall away, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In Mark 13, the Holy Spirit says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In Acts chapter 20, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then the Holy Spirit says in 1 John, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Maple Avenue. Do we believe the Holy Spirit and what he says? Our passage begins... The Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It is a real and imminent threat to us. that demonic forces will arise with the intent of blowing us off course. That word teachings of demons, elsewhere translated doctrines, I call these demon doctrines that are meant to pull us away. In the opening sermon in our series in 1 Timothy, we talked about how the church is kind of like a big rig, an empty big rig even, going across a Saskatchewan plain in the middle of a windstorm, so easily blown off course this way or that. And the book of 1 Timothy was given so that we can keep the church on course, which of course is the theme for our series in 1 Timothy keeping the church on course. The threat is real before us. And if we miss that, not only does our passage begin with the fact that some will fall away, 
It ends by saying we need to do some certain things so that we will be saved on the last day. It's a real threat. Now, when I gave that opening sermon series or that opening sermon on the book of First Timothy, I talked about how Timothy actually talks about a lot of different ways those demon doctrines show themselves. In that sermon, we talked about five different ways that it happens. Here, we're going to look at one particular iteration of that in verses three to five. But before we look at that particular iteration of demon doctrine, I just want to say a few six six observations about about these. Um, demon doctrines about these demons from verses 1 and 2. First, demons are real. When it talks about deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, they are real. These are spiritual forces that are messengers of Satan working with him to accomplish his purposes, which are to steal, to kill, to destroy, to deceive. They're real. Second thing I want to say, we then must be vigilant and on guard. Now it is true that the Jesus we serve and the Holy Spirit he's given us is f- are far, far more powerful than these demons. So in a certain sense, there is nothing to fear. We're safe and we're secure. And yet, the scriptures command us to be watchful. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Be sober-minded, watchful, knowing that your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion, waiting for someone to devour. Resist the devil. It says. So we need to be vigilant. Three, the aim of these demons is to turn us from the gospel. Following Jesus, finding salvation in Christ and in his gospel is is what sets up the eternal world for all the goodness that God has planned. And Satan's one desire is to swerve us away from that and he will use any means possible as long as we're not holding on to that. So that is the mission of these demons. Fourth, they are master deceivers. Master deceivers. Remember, deceitful spirits, it says. They will present their, 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 way, their ways of getting us off track are going to be presented in ways that sound very spiritual, sound good, will be carefully crafted to appeal to our very ways of thinking so that we'll think We're going right in the right direction even as we fall off the cliff. They're master deceivers. Fifth, they work through human, they often work through human influencers. So we see that in verse two, right? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I say human influencers because sometimes false teachers were like, oh, that person's a false teacher as long as I stay away from that person. 
no, it's going to be from among our own selves. Like these are people who are human influencers. They have influence and they have sway and they're humans and the, the demons are working through them often to pull us astray. Many of these people might even start off with noble intentions, but what happens is they, as they get power, as they get money, as they get prestige, prestige, influence, they start to say, well, if I do this, I like, I like the effect that I do this. And, and they start to sear their conscience and that they're doing things that are false, knowingly. And yet they have these consciences that are seared and they, they lead us astray, right? The sixth observation that I think is important from these first two verses is to say, you and I are susceptible Why would he begin with the Holy Spirit expressly says, if it were not the case, that he is trying to say we are susceptible. And those who think, I'm not really susceptible to these demon doctrines, I'm not really susceptible to the demonic attack, are probably the ones who are most susceptible. So all that to say, We need to pay attention. We need to take heed. We need to be on guard. The threat is real. Now in verses 3 to 5, we get the first, we get get the uh, particular iteration of the demon doctrines that's being addressed here in chapter 4. But as I mentioned, Paul in, in 1 Timothy mentions all sorts of iterations of this, and there's different mixes, and they get mixed together in all sorts of ways. But in verses 3 to 5, what he is identifying here is a form of asceticism or a, a legalism. Now, legalism often is used to talk about those who take holiness really seriously. So God has commanded this, this, and this, and so I'm really committed to being like this, this, and oh, you're such a legalist. But that is not what Paul is taking aim at here. Just look down at verses 7 and 8. He says, Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Seems like that's a legalist statement, isn't it? At least legalism is spoken like that. God is not opposed to us being fully committed to obeying his commandments and to being holy. Legalism, as we're talking about it, what, what Paul is taking at, aims at here and what the rest of scriptures takes take aims at is when we take the teachings of man of here's how you need to live that go above scripture and say, This is what you must do. Here is how you must live in ways that go above and beyond Scripture. Jesus will say, when you do that, you actually neuter the very word of God because you are taking the traditions of man and saying, thus saith the Lord. Any way that we can do this, any way we take our own ideas and teachings and elevate them to the level of thus saith the Lord, we are in a bad and dangerous place. But here in particular, Paul takes aims at those who take things that God has called good 
and forbid them. And he takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the whole world. He creates food for man to enjoy. And he says, it is good. It is good. He saw all that was made, and behold, it was very good. Oh, man alone, not good. So good then when he creates marriage. God's word, the truth of God, teaches us that these things are good, and then people come along and say, these things that God has created good are actually forbidden from you. And that is demonic, Paul says. Demonic. Now, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to choose to be single. Both Jesus and Paul commend that when you're doing that so as to better serve the Lord. But when we forbid marriage, it's demonic. It's not wrong to give up food, maybe to fast for a season, or to choose not to eat something because it could cause your brother to stumble. Those things are actually commended in Scripture. But when we forbid certain foods as kind of the way to show that you're a higher and better Christian, it's demonic. When somebody receives one of God's good gifts and thanks God for it and knows from God's word, this is holy, this is good, and receives it, it's a blessing. That's how God intended it. I just want to make a comment here. It used to be that if you were a Christian, you prayed before your meal. This is part of why we do that. God has said this is good, and then he's given to us because he wants to bless us. And it's right to then stop and be thankful and to pray. We're not doing some magical thing where we make this now a blessed thing. We're just saying, God said it's good. It's good for us, and I thank God for it. I'd encourage you. If you don't, stop before any time you're enjoying something good from God, but particularly food, and thank him for it. So, this particular iteration of demon doctrine, this kind of legalism, asceticism, saying there are certain things that are, there are certain things that you are forbidden from doing, from partaking of. It's wrong, it's demonic. Now, I want to make one, just one comment before I move on from verses 3 to 5. I've actually heard these verses used in order to justify taking habit-forming and harmful substances. Well, God created it and says, as long as I pray first, it's holy, it's good. Well, God created all sorts of things, and he, and he created them for a purpose, and we use them in the way that is part of God's good purpose for them. And certainly bringing harm to ourselves is not one of the good purposes he's created certain things for. So we don't take poison 
and invoke this verse and say, well, I prayed, and so it's good for me. And so we shouldn't be taking habit-forming, harmful substances and using this verse to justify it either. All right. So we've seen this particular oration. And I hope more broadly, from verses 1 to 5, we've seen that there is a really real threat before us. Demonic activity that is seeking to derail you and derail me so that we make shipwreck of our faith. We can, we can start out professing the faith and because we get caught up in demon doctrines, end up falling off the cliff and making shipwreck of our faith. It's a sobering and scary reality. Anybody here afraid of heights? I even got someone raising their hand. I am afraid of heights. My son's raising his hand too. I'm afraid of heights and I'm not afraid of heights. Let me explain what I mean. You put me on about a 10 meter cliff without any rope or harness or safety net, and I start to get anxious and nervous. I might only break my leg if I fall, but there's a risk of falling, and so I'm scared. But you put me on a 40-meter cliff with a harness and a rope that I know is steady and secure, it's not scary for me. If I I know I'm safe and I know I'm not going to fall, I'm okay. When we end at verse 5, we're kind of on the end of devil's drop with no harness and no rope. We're going, oh no, I could fall. And there should be a palpable fear that comes from that. But God does not want us to stay there. And so he provides a rope and a harness for us that are safe and secure. That church, even though this is a real threat, you don't need to be worried. You are stable and secure if you have this rope and this harness. And the rope is a pastor who is committed to expositional preaching. And the harness is a pastor who is committed to exemplary living. Expositional preaching, exemplary living. Let me show you that. Right out of the gate in verse 6, he calls Timothy to a certain kind of public teaching that is rooted in the healthy and good doctrine that he has learned from a young age. So there's this teaching element that's going to be the safeguard of the church. But then watch this interplay of godly living, exemplary living, and expositional preaching as we move forward. At the end of verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. Exemplary living. And then verse 11, command and teach these things. A public teaching of certain doctrine that's very important. And then again, in verse end of verse 12, Set the believers an example, exemplary living in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith and in purity. And then he goes from exemplary living to expositional preaching. And this is really where we get the idea of expositional preaching. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, you have a Scripture, God's Word, you begin with that, and then you exhort and teach from that, where it's God's Word that you're exhorting from and teaching from, which is all I mean by expositional preaching. And then again, at the end, in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, godly, exemplary living, right? And on the teaching. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. When the leaders in the church give themselves to these two things, It provides a rope and a harness so that the church is safe. Now maybe you read verse 16 and you get a little uncomfortable. Timothy is the one saving himself and his hearers? Aren't we putting a little bit too much stock in a human here? To assuage your discomfort, I read from John Calvin on this verse. Nor should it seem strange that Paul ascribes to Timothy the work of saving the church. For all that are one for God are saved, and it is by the preaching of the gospel that we are gathered to Christ. And just as the unfaithfulness or negligence of a pastor is fatal to the church, so it is right for the salvation to be ascribed to his faithfulness and diligence. It is indeed true that it is God alone who saves, and not even the smallest part of his glory can rightly be transferred to men. But God's glory is in no way diminished by his using the labor of men in bestowing salvation. Thus our salvation is the gift of God, but that does not exclude the ministry of men nor does it deny that the ministry may be the means of salvation. So, that's what you need, Ephesians. And aren't you in luck? You have Timothy. You're in good shape, right? Not so fast. Not so fast. Timothy is no God. Nor is any man, no matter his pedigree, his mentors, his resume, his reputation. And so Paul takes time to identify three potential deterrents, things that could sidetrack Timothy from this very work. The first one's in verse 7. And you know, you know this is how Paul's arguing, because he gives us, don't do this, and then he reiterates the call. Be godly and teach. Don't do this, verse 12, be godly and teach. Don't do this, verse 14, be godly and teach. And so with the remainder of the sermon, I'm just going to work, work through these three potential deterrents. The first one in verses 7 to 11, second one in verses 12 and 13, the third one in verses 14 to 16. In deterrent... Number one in verses 7 to 11 is 
distraction. Distraction. See that in verse 7? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. It's so easy to get caught up in these kind of things that are out here, that aren't on about the scriptures and the gospel and the Christ they uphold. In chapter 1, verse 6, these are called vain discussions. And it's easy for someone in leadership to see this thing over here that's just not important and to get caught up in it. You guys know what a coon dog is? From the old days, a dog trained to track raccoons and get them up trees so you can get your coonskin cap. Like a, like a coon dog, it's always chasing the scent of a squirrel or a rabbit or a field mouse. It's the overseer of a church. It's constantly getting caught up in quarrels and vain discussions. Useless. Leaders of the church can't lose the scent. We are about the scriptures, what God has said, his gospel, and the Christ they uphold. After warning of this distraction, again, Paul reiterates the call first to godliness. And then in verse 11, a kind of teaching. The answer to the solution, the way to not be distracted is to stay on scent. To train yourself for something in particular for godliness. And I just, I want to make three comments about this, uh, this idea of godliness. First, I want you to see the motivation for the godliness. Okay? So, of course, there's that phrase in verse 9, the third time Paul uses this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, which is this time is pointing back to the idea of godliness being of value in this life and also for all eternity, that we need to be committed to that. And then Paul says, this, this is something we toil and strive for. Why? Because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In other words, when you have the hope of Jesus' gospel, a living God who's risen from the dead and is going to come back and rescue his people and establish an eternal kingdom for all who would believe, when this is your hope, it causes you to live a certain way. Because you know that's what eternity is going to be like, this new humanity in Christ, living, this, living lives marked by joy and wholeness and peace and love and grace. We see that's what we're about, that God, that's where my hope is. It causes us to want to live that way here and now. In this dark world, let's be that new humanity. Let's be that godly people that God has called us to be, that he's preparing us for eternally. Let's be that now. And so the motivation for godly living is having our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of the world. It's the first observation I think is important in this godliness. The second observation I think is important is um, this isn't 
a Bible verse about the importance of exercise. I say that. I've actually heard this verse, particularly um, verse 8, quoted many times, and almost every time I hear it quoted, it's being quoted to state it's important to exercise. God says it's important to exercise. Now, being good stewards of our Bible is something, or of our bodies, is something I think the Bible commends. What I'm saying is don't use this verse as the justification for it. Because when you follow the logic of this verse, it's not saying exercise is a really good thing and there's something even better. It's saying train yourself for godliness. Just like people train themselves for something that's fleeting and temporary, how much more should we train ourselves for something that holds value not only in this life, but also for the life to come? It's a comparison of contrast. Let's say, let's say you're a young person and, and you're really good at something. Maybe you're really good at soccer. So you, you commit. I'm going to train. I'm going to use this God-given gift. Develop it. Work hard at it. Maybe you become really good. One of the top soccer players in Canada, maybe you join the, the, soc the national soccer team like Christine Sinclair. You're at the height, of, the height of the world when it comes to this. Christine Sinclair, when the women last just won their gold, was a small part of the victory. She's already on the decline. She's soon going to be off the field altogether. Do you know how old she is? 38 not even lived half her life and this thing she's trained herself for. It's done. But you train yourself for godliness and you get to 38 and you're just getting started and you just get better and better and better and then Jesus comes and then you reach the height of it. It's so much better. That's what this is saying. Train yourself for godliness. This isn't about athletics and how important to take care of our body. All right, that's, that's point number two. Point number three is don't throw conniption fits about the end of verse 10. That's the thir third thing I want to say. When it says, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe? You know, the Bible is pretty clear that Jesus died for the sins of the world. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, it talks about how God's desire is for all people to be saved. At the same time, the Bible is also very clear that not everyone will be saved. Only those who believe will be saved in the end. That is also clear and taught throughout the scriptures. Now, there are all sorts of systems out there how to make sense of those two truths, and some of the systems are better than others. But I think they're largely biblical systems if they are affirming both those truths, and all this is doing here is affirming both those truths which the whole scriptures teach. And so you don't need to get high-strung about that. All right? 
So train yourself for godliness. Commit yourself to teaching these things. That way you won't be distracted. Stay on the scent. Train. Stay focused like an athlete on what really matters. What is deterrent number two then? Deterrent number two in verses 12 and 13. It's actually another D word. Despise. Being despised. Let no one despise you for your youth. You know, there there are all sorts of lame, non-biblical reasons that pastors or overseers are despised. Often it has to do with age. You're too young. Or, sometimes today, you're too old. Or maybe it's because you're not from around here, or because you're not married, or whatever the case may be. But there will be temptation for the leader when he is despised to become weighed down and discouraged by that. Paul knows it's coming for Timothy, that young man. So he calls him, no one despise you. You can't control what other people do. What it's really saying is, don't get caught up in that. Rise above it. And first he says, Rise above it by your exemplary life, right? Set the believers an example in speech. We're looking at verse 10, or sorry, 12. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I've been making clear that the context of this passage is for the minister, the overseer of the church, the pastor. There are a lot of young people in this room. You're a young person. This is a pretty good list of what godliness can look like. That's a good, it's a good verse to have in mind. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Get them all. If you just kind of use as an inventory, that's how I want to be growing. It's a good thing for you too, not just for pastors. So don't don't get caught up in this despising. Instead, give yourself to just setting an example. And then in verse 13, not only exemplary living, but expositional preaching. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It's really based on a synagogue model. It's what they would do in the synagogue. They'd open up a passage from God's Word, they would read it, and then they would comment from it and encourage from it. And that's what Paul is saying. If this church is going to be tethered, if this church is going to be able to make it on these demon drop cliffs, Without falling, you got to have God's word as the central. That's got to be what's holding us. Not some man's opinion standing up and giving a sermon that's based on his life experiences that sprinkled with a few Bible verses that kind of back up what he already thinks. No, it's saying God's word has to be front and center. You read a passage, what is it saying? And from there, 
Let's teach that. Let's exhort from that. And that is safety for the church. People can despise you all you want, all they want, for whatever reason. But you live an exemplary life and give yourself to expositional preaching and we'll be okay. Now there's a third deterrent in verses 14 to 16. And it starts with another D. Dropping out. Dropping out. See in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What is this gift? Well, it's the gift that was given to him when the elders prophetically laid their hands upon him and ordained him to a life of gospel ministry. So the gift is this calling to be a steward of the gospel, a servant of Christ in an official capacity. And it is often tempting for men who have been ordained, prophetically ordained, by the local church to say, this is what you need to give your life to. Putting their hands on you, praying over you, commissioning you to that task, it is often easy to neglect that gift. To set it on the shelf. To set it aside. In other words, to quit. To drop out. And Paul knows it'll be a temptation for Timothy, so he says, don't neglect it. Remember what happened. Now, it's interesting. A lot of times in, um, in our day and age, when we think about pastors, our big questions is this, when did you feel that sense of call from God? This internal sense that God's calling me to gospel ministry. And we make a really big deal of that. Now, it's true that in the Old Testament, there are certain, even with Paul, there are certain dramatic times where God says, I'm picking you, you're going to be a minister. And that's kind of what we say. But in the New Testament, you just don't really see that as the model for how someone is set aside for gospel ministry. Rather, it is the local church identifying someone and his gifting and saying, we are prophetically putting our hands upon you and commissioning you to this work. And so when you get ahead and you face those overwhelming odds and you want to drop out, you need to remember there was a group of men that God put over me. And they said, we are commissioning you prophetically to a work. We are giving you this gift of gospel ministry. If those people thought, even when I can't see it, I need to keep myself committed to that. I love where first 15 goes. This guy who wants to drop out. Expositional preaching, exemplary living. Are we talking about perfection? No. Thankfully. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Progress. It's not about perfection. No man's a God. No man's going to get it completely right. It's about progress. And again, he returns to those two key themes. Godliness, teaching, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teachings. 
teaching, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, there are people who climb cliffs with no rope and no harness. They're called free climbers, sometimes free soloing, and most of them are dead. It's true. We're on the edge of demon drop. We need the harness that God's given us. We need the rope. If we have that, if we stay tethered to that, we're safe. If we don't, we're susceptible. I want to close with a personal word. Um, I, I feel the weight. I feel the weight of this passage. It's, it's an uncomfortable and a heavy thing that in some ways your own spiritual health and safety is dependent on me and, and the other overseers I serve with. But I want to say the dependence goes both ways. Because I feel my dependence on you as well. As you pray for me. As you encourage me. As you hold me accountable. Make sure that I'm progressing. And so I want to thank you. Because I think you've done that well for me. Many of you have labored in prayer for me, encouraged me, and helped me grow. Even in hard seasons, this church is a great church to serve in. I'm really thankful for you. And I, I think I, I can say that I speak for the other elders or overseers of this church, that they feel the same way. Your prayers, your encouragement, your accountability, your support has helped us do what God's called us to do. Of course, it's not really about you. It's not really about me or any other overseer. At the end of the day, it's, it's about Jesus, the living God, the Savior of the world. Because what safety for us is really holding out his message. So when we think of a message like this, where is our safety from demonic forces found? It's in Christ. And so a table that reminds us that we are together in Christ. We have put faith in him. We are one in him and safe in him. It's an appropriate way to end a sermon like this. So I'm going to pray, and then we will move to the communion table. Can you join me? Father, thank you for this word. themes we're not necessarily often thinking about. We don't often think about satanic attack, how he wants to cause us to fall away, and what we can do to stop that. But here you have it for us. And then we're reminded on this first Sunday of the month of what Jesus has done to be our safety, to be our place of rest. 
So as we turn to this table, may our hearts swell with gratitude as we're rooted in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, at this point, as you came in, hopefully you received a cup. But if you didn't, whether you're in the overflow or here in the auditorium, I know there's even a few people at home that we get those cups to. Uh, but if you're here in the overflow or the auditorium and you didn't get a cup and you're a follower of Christ, you're a believer, and you would like to join with us, if you could just signal to the ushers and they will make sure um, that you receive a cup. This is a meal for followers of Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church, but we do trust that you are somebody who is a true member of Christ's church. Hopefully you have another church you're a member of if it's not here. But this is a sign of our unity together as true believers. And the Bible warns that if you are not a follower of Christ, you shouldn't take of the cup or the bread. It also warns that if you claim to be a follower but are just not living like it at all in some way, you should also refrain until you can repent and embrace this gift for you. All right, I think everybody has been served. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain something just because these are a little different than somehow they, than they sometimes work. Um, there's, a, there's two layers of wrapping. The top one reveals the bread, and then the second one opens the cup. So in a moment, we are going to receive the bread. I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to sing a song of reflection. We would often do that as elements are being dispersed, and since we're doing it a little differently, we're going to give you time to reflect through this song. Please join in the song, or if you just want to bow your head, you're welcome to do that as well. And then after we sing the verse about the bread, we're going to take the bread together. So join me in prayer, and then let's sing together. Father, we think of Jesus' body broken for us so that we could be made whole. And we thank you. I pray that even now, as we take together, we'd be reminded of our common humanity in Christ, new humanity in Christ, and rejoice together. In Christ's name, amen.